Brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, my, Lynn Garson is my first guest this morning. She's a writer, attorney, mother of three, and author of her first book, Southern Vapors. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Nice to have you here this morning. Thank you. Good morning to you. Well, your new book, Southern Vapors, is described as an intriguing memoir that chronicles your life growing up on West Paces Ferry Road, which is one of Atlanta's wealthiest neighborhoods. Very social Jewish parents, nursemaids, butlers, chauffeurs. So it sounds good to me, Lynn. What was the problem? What went wrong? Um, you know, as with most things, I wouldn't say it was just one thing, but if I had to isolate something, I would say it was the fact that everything was about presenting an image and nothing was about what was going on behind the image. So you had these very well-to-do Jewish parents, very social, uh, traveled a lot, left you with the butlers and the help and the nannies, etc. cetera. Um, but when you say that, it, you know, what was said or what was presented to the outside world wasn't really what was going on in the house. When were you aware of that, when you were growing up, when you were little? I mean, little kids, if they're well taken care of, aren't they just well taken care of? No, um, yeah, well, yes, that's part (laughs) of it, and I certainly can't complain that I had any kind of issues about material things. But as a very young child, there were issues, and this is going to sound strange to you, but it's the truth, about what I ate and and what anybody was eating. There was this idea that you had to be thin, and I'm saying as a four-year-old, I was aware of this kind of thing. And I write in the book about being dragged by my mother to get weight on the scale and screamed at, you know, four, five, six, seven years old as a, a very small child. And I remember as a result, I would say, sitting there with candy bars lined up next to me because I was so scared and I turned to food as, as uh, you know, ironically as a, a way to comfort myself. And so the whole thing, just it was a cycle. So I would eat and eat and eat. I would gain some weight. She'd drag me to the scale. She'd scream. I'd cry. I'd eat and eat and eat. And, no, it, it was not easy. It, it was not the little, you know, life of luxury that it sounds like. So, you know, your mother, well, you ended up, and uh, in a mental institution. I mean, you went from sort of the height of all of this luxurious living to winding up in a mental institution. And more all than the, one. More than <laughs> one. Okay, more yeah. than once. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're describing an eating disorder, depression, uh, addiction, uh, all of those things, which are described, I guess, in the memoir. So yeah. um, this is your first book. This is You decided to sit down and, you know, it's interesting because you're telling me your family everything had to be perfect and presented to the outside world in a way that, 
you know, we're this perfect family. And now you're writing a memoir that's really revealing all the, uh, you know, nasty, ugly stuff that was happening. Um, and uh, is your mother still alive? She is. She, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, the impact on you, not only you, but your, your own family, your own kids, but, you know, your mother, um, must be, can we talk about that? Yeah, it's been very interesting. Um, when I was knew that I was going to publish the book, and actually, a lot of the way along, I would show it to her. I was very open about it, and at times I, I was biting my nails, because uh, I still have a good relationship with her and want to have a good relationship with her. Um, it, it's a mixed relationship, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of love in it, and I certainly don't, didn't want to lose her. And so I would show it to her and I would say, have you read it? Have you read it? Have you read it? And yes, yes, yes. Well, meanwhile, I could sort of tell by comments she had made that she hadn't really read everything. So before I published it, I said, okay, now you have got to read this book. I am telling you that this is going to get published. And if there is anything in there that gives you heartburn, you need to tell me now. And there were two things, both of which had to do with her parents, who are hardly even mentioned. But she's hypersensitive about that, so I gussied that up a little bit. And as for the rest, that's why there's the quote on the back cover that says, my mother's uh, response was to borrow a phrase, frankly, I don't give a damn. Um, she said that to me, finally, when I had pushed and pushed and pushed, and she said, I don't, I don't give a damn. You know, I'm 87 years or 86 years old, however old she was at the time. This is your baby. This is something you want to do. Do it. Yeah. Well, I think that does come with aging. My mother actually said a similar thing to me the other day. You know, do you, she has eight grandchildren. Do you worry about them? Are you concerned? They all have their issues, good and bad. She said, you know, I'm going to be 90 years old. I have to worry about staying alive myself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I will say the other side of it, I thought I breathed a great sigh of relief when she said that. I thought the coast was clear. Everything was good. And it has turned out in the months since I published the book that she'll vacillate a little bit. There are days when she'll say, you know, why did you say thus and so? And I think, but you said it was okay. But, you know, it goes back and forth a little bit. But basically, she's been okay. So it's your story, your memoir. So why did you think people would be interested? Because, you know, some of the themes are very common. So, you know, not everybody can identify with everything in the book, but, you know, the issues, it's all about a family. What makes the book so interesting? Well, the thing was, I never did start out with it to be a book. I never had an idea that I had this great story that people would be interested in. I started it when I was in the final mental institution that I was in in January of 2010. I guess I started it in February. And I used, it was a blog, and I was trying to reach out to people who could relate to some of the things that I was going through. And it just poured out of me. You know, I was in this institution that I describe in the book that was very foreign to, you know, little Miss Lap of Luxury. It was a lot of crackheads and, and you know, people who were street people almost. How old were you? I was 2010. Oh, my math is so bad. All right, I'm 59 now. What was I, 56? Okay. Yeah. 50, yeah. But in that, I just, you know, general category, 56. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I started this as a blog, and I wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was it had maybe eight 
15 entries or something. So it, I'd written a bit. And no one, no one found this blog. I had two friends and one stranger who were following this blog. But I sent it to a friend of mine who had been a writer. And I didn't send it to her because she was a writer. I sent it because she was a friend. And she emailed me back, you don't need a psychiatrist, you need a literary agent. And I just blossomed. I, I just, oh my gosh, this is wonderful. I'm so, I was so excited that she said that. And that put the idea in my head. And then wild horses couldn't stop me. So I just kept writing and writing and, and polished it and polished it and turned it into a book. And turned it into a comeback story. That's the, the subtitle. What is that? Well, you know, Southern Vapors, a comeback story. So how does that fit in that title? Well, the comeback story, you mean? Yeah. Um, well, what that is, I was down. I, I was in free fall. Let's go back now to 2007. I had gotten divorced in 2006, and it had been like most divorces. It was very rough, and then we have three children, and it was all very difficult. And I was living in Norfolk, Virginia, which is my ex-husband's place where he was born, and for me, I felt very marginalized, very isolated. It was his family, his friends, and now there was me, sort of off, way, way off to the side, sort of like Pluto, which I think they got rid of. But, you know. They're like, <laughs> trying to bring it back, I think. But anyway. <laughs> oh, are they? Okay. Well, I, I consider me like Pluto before, yeah. in, in exile. And um, so... I decided in my infinite wisdom at a certain point in, in the fall of 2007 that it would be a great idea for me to reconcile with my ex-husband. I wanted my life back. I wanted my kids. I wanted my family. I wanted to be back in the house. You know, I wanted it all back. And from the moment that I made my that decision, and, and he agreed, he wanted to go on and try that, I went into such a free fall that you cannot imagine. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't breathe. It was so horrible. But And I knew, and part of me knew why this was happening. And another part just said, I don't care. I want my life back. I don't care how miserable I am. I want my life back. And I got sicker and sicker and sicker until I was really close to being suicidal. And so I put myself in the hospital um, and and started a recovery. And to sort of collapse it all from a time frame point of view, I didn't do enough work, collapsed or came close to collapse again in the early part of 2010, went back in the hospital. And the recovery, the, the comeback, is when I finally woke up and figured out that nobody could do this but me. Nobody could really take charge of my life but me. And that I needed to put some things in place that would support an ongoing recovery. And I did. And here I stand. So that's you the think, comeback. Well, okay, that's the comeback part. Now, when you're saying that you're, you finally realize you're the only one who can help Lynn, uh, nobody else can do that, did that come, I mean, and you're in your 50s. So up until that time, because you were, um, you know, very well educated, college, as I said in the beginning, I think lawyer, um, responsible person in terms of how the outside world would view you. But inside it sounds like you're saying there was, you were kind of emotionally a little girl. Absolutely. You have nailed it. Yeah. And and especially you were saying you, you grew up well educated, yes, but I 
also grew up in this environment where I didn't have to be responsible for anything. I think my parents tried to do a good job to make me uh, somebody who, who would be responsible, but it didn't take because it didn't have to. I had, um, I remember, I had a maid that I could call if I went down and got a bowl of ice cream. I remember one time calling her, and I got in trouble for this, and saying, I've got a bowl. Can you come get it? And she called my mother to ask, was it okay? We had an intercom, you know, in the house. On the, so she called her, and my mother went nuts because, number one, I, you know, that was an abuse of the maid, and number two, I was eating ice cream. So, uh, you know, but that was my life. I didn't have to be responsible for money. I, I write in the book, and this is absolutely true, that when I went junior year abroad to Paris, you know, which a lot of kids do, we had a family business that had branches all over the world, and I used to go to a man's office, and he would hand me a sack full of French francs that I would take back to my little uh, dorm room, and I would spend it. And then when I needed more, I'd go get some more. And now how is a kid like that going to be responsible? How do you get people? Yeah, I, and I, I, I understand. I, I think I'm understanding where you're coming from. How does, you know, when people listen to you, though, they're thinking, well, okay, um, did she really have to overcome so much? I mean, like, you, you know, the money was there. She, the, you know, all of these opportunities were there. Could you have done something beforehand? You know, you waited, not waited, but, you know, the, all of this, this kind of this realization didn't happen until you were in your 50s. Were there periods along the way that would, you would say you had opportunities to really separate, I guess. You have to be able to separate from your family to grow up, separate emotionally. Right. So, yeah. I fought that battle my entire life, and I started going to therapy when I was 28 years old. So it's been now more than half my life. Um, and before that, I, I tried to do things to help myself as well. I really don't know how to tell people strongly enough that – the fact that you have the material things and you seem to have the advantages and you should have figured it out, if you are so broken inside and, and at almost your core that you can't help yourself, you, there's, no, uh, there's no amount of money that fixes that. And there's nothing. I can't tell you how many people would say, but you're pretty and you're, you have a good job and you're you smart. have money and, and, you know, this and that. And I, I was so unhappy at different times in my life. And so I don't know if I was clinically depressed or suffering from despair or hopelessness or some combination of the above, but I cannot describe to you the pain and the, the levels of suffering that I went through. So, no, the money really didn't make it okay, and I will add one other little piece from my childhood that maybe some people can relate to and, and take this as a way of understanding why everything else didn't make it okay. I, I think the closest thing I've had to an accurate clinical diagnosis is complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, PTSD is what most people think of, of soldiers coming home from war 
and they've been exposed to bombs and 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 startling horrible things happening and and so they hear a car backfire in the street and all of a sudden they're transported back to the war zone and their nerves are shattered as a result of that and they struggle and and we all know that that's a very um that's a topic that's very much at hand right now well what complex PTSD is is somebody who has had some of the same uh, things affect them, but it's not a war zone. It's not a, a place of battle. My battlefield was the home that I grew up in. And what the war zone was, and I've alluded to this, is my mother had, I cannot say that it was a bad temper because it was more than that. She suffered from rages. And you never knew when they were going to come, and you never knew what day or what you had done, and you might do the same thing on two different days, and one day you'd get a smile and a shrug, and uh, the other day you'd, you'd get these piercing black eyes boring through you, and you'd literally turn into ice. You'd be so terrified. And I grew up like that. You know, That's how she I, controlled you. I mean, Pardon you don't me? know, uh, that's how you can, I mean, if I'm listening to you in the circumstance with, between you and your mother, that's how a parent can control a child because the child never knows what to expect. It's so inconsistent. There's no intimacy. There's, and I think not knowing what to expect makes you clearly anxious, scared, frightened, because you, you, you just never know what's going to happen. It's not dependent on your own behavior. Exactly, and there's no consistency, like you've said. I've read literature that says that people who were horribly abused can actually handle that better than the inconsistency because as awful as it is, at least they know what's coming. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, well, actually, that's one reason why people don't get divorced because you know what you have, let's say, even if it's a horrible relationship. But the unknown is always terrifying. And in the, I guess the unknown, as you're describing it on a day-to-day basis with your mother, was overwhelmingly terrifying for a kid. But where would your father fit into all of this? He was, uh, of the two, he was the less strong-willed. And, and <laughs> if ever there was a euphemism, that was it. She was so dominant and so strong. He was very ineffectual when it came to trying to get in her way if she was on the really on the war path. I remember a couple of times where after her just going at it for maybe an hour, he would say, now that's enough, you know, in this meek little voice. And, man, she would roll right over him. And so that was another part of it that as much as I loved him and, and he and I had, I had a really loving relationship as a child, I knew that he wouldn't protect me. And, and I don't know that I understood at the time that he couldn't, but it certainly was clear to me that he wouldn't. So he couldn't why? I, his personality, and I think that was, you know, all marriages have a contract between the people, you know, the husband and the wife. There, there are certain agreements. And I believe that his agreement with my mother was that as long as she would be beautiful and stunning and, and someone that he just felt so wonderful having on his arm, she could do, you know, her thing at home. And, and also her agreement with him was as long as you bring home the bacon, you know, I do, I do this and, and you don't get in my way. You know, I will, she did the, 
typical woman of her era's job of making my father think in certain instances that he made the decisions. But as I watched it as a child growing up, she was the power behind the throne. It's that manipulation. I think that women of that generation were was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She, I agree. The, uh, one of the very few lessons, that, you know, life lessons that she ever uh, overtly taught me was that men are meant to be molded. That's your job is to you take one and you take a lump of clay and you mold it into what you want it to be. And, I mean, I'm not making that up. That was a statement that was made to me. I think that was pretty typical of that generation, of that era. I think uh, women of our generation, that was part of breaking away from that. You know, not you, know, you weren't supposed to be straightforward or out front or uh, on an equal setting. It was all, I keep going back to the word manipulation, but I, I think that's very true and destructive. But you know what's also interesting, Lynn? Your father obviously was very successful in business, and very often, I, you know, I've heard stories, similar is obviously not your story, but where here you have a man who's very successful when it comes to business. He can, uh, you know, take care of his employees, do what he has to do, make a lot of money. But at home, it's very different. And, and, and he, and we're talking about that generation in particular, can't really um, be in control of, of himself or the situation or the kids. Um, it's a common, yeah, no, yeah. I think you're right. And I've had people also point out to me, and I remember him saying, my father even saying, when when we would go to him occasionally and, and complain, either my brother or me, my mother, oh, she did this and that, this is not my job. I go to work and I do my job, but what happens here is not my job. I wasn't here. So I think, that, you know, and people have said to me, well, yeah, you know, that was my experience too, people my age. So it was a generational thing up to a point. I don't think it was true of everybody. Well, when it becomes exaggerated, as you're describing it, really exaggerated, then it, beca- you know, the results are like what happened to you. Right. What about? Do you think of- that I've adequately explained, because this is interesting to me, how you know, I don't. I guess part of me wants to think that people actually understand that I did suffer. I mean, does it, have I explained that, or does it still sound like, oh, poor little rich girl? No, I think you've explained. I mean, I think as we've gotten into it, you've explained it well. Yes, like in the beginning, it it comes across as, as I said in the beginning. Okay, you know, we all you can grow up poor and still have some of the same issues. That may be true, uh, but. That really doesn't make any difference, as you say, because the emotional stuff is completely different. I mean, yes, everybody needs a roof over their head and food to eat and, you know, the basic, uh, you know, those basic kinds of, of, of needs that we have. But, the, you know, beyond that, the emotional stuff can be just as, as horrendous whether you have money or you don't, and I think you do explain that well. I mean, you can look at different families. I'm sure you've done that. I mean, you look at uh, some of the families with a lot, the Gettys, for instance. I think their grandchildren and the children have all kinds of problems and drug problems, et cetera, and then you get other families, wealthy families, who have done really well and don't have those kinds of problems. So mm-hmm. it has to do with the emotional stuff. Isn't that what, I think that's what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and to throw into the mix, I also have realized that it was the perfect storm because I was a sensitive person. That was just part of my personality. And if you had taken a different kid who was tougher than I was, you would have had a different result. 
I think I that's don't true. think most any kid could have completely withstood the kind of environment I grew up in. But being terribly sensitive it didn't help. I think that's that. Obviously, is a really important important part of the whole picture, the family dynamics. And I think there's another piece too. If you had had siblings who could have empathized with you, or you could help each other to get out of that morass with your mm-hmm. parents, between your parents, you know, between you and your mother. That's helpful, too. You didn't yeah. have that. Well, I have a brother, um, but he's a lot older than I am, so you're right. We, we, Yeah, that didn't work. In fact, I've often thought about Pat Conroy when you talk about writing a book and, you know, how has that worked for him. I heard, I've heard him speak a couple of times, and I think he's a wonderful speaker and a wonderful writer, and it has, I've come away with the idea that he had a number of siblings. I forget how many. And as far as I can tell from what he said, they were all on the same page. They all got it about their parents and they all understood what was happening to them. And I thought, well, of course you could go write these books, you know, it, and, and you're seem to be a stable person because you had that. Just like you said, you had the support at least of people who got it about what was going on, where what was also very painful for me was people coming up to me and saying, oh, I just love your mother. You must be so happy to have her as a mother. This is, she's so beautiful and so kind. And, and I just, I, and I would have to nod and say yes. And, and it was very painful. Yeah, so, and you were constantly put in that kind of a situation. It, that whole, the difference between what the, I keep, maybe I've said this already, but what the outs, what they, the presentation to the outside world and, and what actually was going on in, inside your family. There was such mm-hmm. a disconnect. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just didn't connect. Yeah. And, yeah. But look, what about, we only have a couple minutes left because oh, no. your own family, I want, I mean, you know, um, listeners should go out and read the book. Obviously, Southern Vapors, and you can go on southernvapors.com, which is the website, which is Lynn's website, southernvapors.com, and the title of the book is Southern Vapors. But, um, you know, because all of this is going to affect your family of origin now, um, here's your family of procreation. What happened? You have three kids. Um, how do you not repeat that kind of stuff with them? Oh, I have tried. I've been very aware, and and a lot of the conversation now is about mindfulness in in every arena. That if you're mindful and aware, that's half the battle. And I think I was very mindful uh, and tried not to dismiss their feelings and their opinions. And and by nature, I'm a person, as you can tell, I wouldn't have wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I like to talk about all that. I mean, I live for that. I can talk all day long about, you know, how do you feel and what did you think? And and I love self-analysis and and probing and, and trying to figure it out. So I certainly was by nature the opposite of my family of origin in the way I raised my children along those lines. You know, obviously I made a mistake. There are made multiple mistakes. You can't be a parent and not make mistakes, but I really tried hard not to make that one, and I don't think I did make that one. They're all three pretty much able to talk to me about things and, and know that I'm a person that they can come to. 
Well, once you've written this book, they should they should know that, as you said. <laughs> well, only one of them has read it. This is a hard book for my children to read. My oldest has read it, and it, it was very it, it hurt to hear what he said. He's not that he was negative, but he said there were times that I had to put my head down and push through it. It was hard. And but he, he did, and he's told me he's very proud of me. Um, I've got a young one who's just 16 who read part of it and gets to the point where I bring her, try to bring her home from camp, but I have to go back to the hospital, and we're parted at the airport, and it, it was really horrible. I mean, people had to almost tear us apart. And she said that she started to cry when she read that, and she put it down. Um, and then I've got another one that hasn't read it. So, you know, eventually they will. They're all proud of me. They all go on my Facebook page and make comments. So it, they're they're good with it. They And two of the three have heard me speak on it, and it, it's been just lovely to, to have that. So they're good. Well. You raise great kids, and you're, I would say brave is, is the word I would use, and you really are a, a brave soul. Um, well, thank you. It's yeah, been, you know, yeah. I don't like the secrets. That that's the result of how I was brought up. So for me to be public about this is a pure pleasure. Well, Southern Vapors, we can't be any more public than that. We are online well, around if, the if world. If anybody wants to come, like, to speak with me, they can also contact me on the website because I'm very available and would like to be available if anyone wants to discuss anything or has issues or, or just anything that anybody would want. Terrific. Thanks, Lynn. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you for so much for having me on. Lynn Garson, author yeah, um, of Southern Vapors. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute with David Fetterman. He is president and CEO of Fetterman & Associates, an international evaluating consulting firm. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. 
and World Talk Radio. Um, David Fetterman is my second guest this morning. He's president and CEO of Fetterman and Associates, which is an international evaluating consulting firm. And he's author. His new book is uh, Empowerment Evaluation in the Digital Villages. Welcome to the show, David. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your book is, as I understand it, it's about a large-scale, comprehensive initiative having to do with um, three major cities here in the United States. So what is that initiative? What's it all about? What have you been evaluating? Yeah, it's actually, in a sense, a test of human resilience fundamentally, but technically it's really evaluating how to bridge the digital divide in communities of color. So HP put a lot of money, resources, people, <clears throat> excuse me, you name it, into these different cities and uh, basically tried to help them bridge that digital divide, building small businesses in the case of uh, the tribal digital village, which is about 18 or 19 uh, Native American tribes in San Diego, building one of the wa- largest wireless systems in the country and a digital printing press, things of that nature, reaching um, out to communities and making sure laptops are available to the kids and to the teachers to help transform the educational process. That's what this is all about. It's really so. Two questions, so David. You have you identified three cities: East Palo Alto, California; <laughs> East Baltimore, and San Diego. Right. That they were the, the 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 cities here in the United States that were in most uh, were suffering from this digital divide. You want to just kind of describe what the digital divide is? Yeah, it's basically folks that were left behind in a sense, uh, folks that didn't really have much access didn't see much need for access, uh, and as a consequence, uh, had no resource, no access uh, in this regard. And this is critical for jobs, education, uh, even entertainment, uh, and keeping up with where the, 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 the culture is going, as it were. So how did you identify these three cities, though? Because, you know, I can think of others besides, in, or in addition to, I guess, major cities that also suffer from this digital divide, which keeps them from, as you say, uh, getting jobs, improving their education, health, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, they had to actually write proposals uh, and actually enter a competition. So that meant that they technically had to be capable of writing a proposal, which, as you know, is not an easy task, have some interest in technology, uh, even if it's a fledgling interest uh, in, in helping, using that as a tool to become more self-determined. Um, and then they had to succeed as far as uh, an actual site visit to see if they could actually probably pull this off. So it was a competition in that regard. Um, at the same time, HP was interested in seeing what would be interesting in different enough cities, different environments, uh, to see if it could work in different places and then, of course, be replicated or at least uh, moved into different communities that were similar. So in other words, you had a real um, comprehensive uh a group of uh, well, a group of people or a group of institutions. What Stanford, Hewlett Packard, you, fifteen million dollars to accomplish all of this. Yeah, basically, uh, we came in. It was very interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I was actually working on a different project. Just as a quick uh, aside, that was about a five million dollar project in East Palo Alto, and it was on a similar kind of tact, but. Uh, these sponsors didn't think we were moving fast enough, um, so they actually took it away from everyone, uh, which is basically felt like a lot of uh, black uh, folks felt like they were being slapped in the face by white folks who had the money and um, said, uh, we'll do it ourselves. And they helped do a lot of work in the community that was really fantastic and then fell apart in about a year and a half or so 
because there was no ownership. So HP came to me, the company, not the foundation. That's how the world has changed, um, and said, you know, we're interested in what you're doing. We, we like the way uh, you're trying to help people become more self-sufficient and build capacity. Uh, we'll, if you're interested, we'll fund you uh, times three. And I said, well, before I say yes, what's in it for you? And they were very blunt. <laughs> they said, to make money. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, well, that's honest, but not exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> I wanted to hear, you know, helping people and that sort of thing. Um, so they said, so I said, please, you know, tell me more. I'm, I'm listening. And they said, you know, we're not interested in selling them software they don't need, hardware, or anything of that nature. We just want to expose them to our name and have our branding on there so that if they become successful in business or what have you, they remember us. And I said, well, that's a fair enough trade-off. I can do that. And that's how we actually entered into all this stuff. And then from there, they looked at proposals from different uh, cities around the country and found that these are the ones that are the most likely to move forward. And as a consequence, invested uh, $5 million in each site. Uh, and then they asked me and my group to help assess how well are they doing. But in this case, not just how well are you doing, like a normal evaluation. It was empowerment evaluation. How do you use that data and help them assess themselves that they learn how to monitor their own performance so that when we go, they've built their own capacity to monitor and assess their own performance and move forward uh, without us? Okay, let's take each one of the cities separately and then look at them in terms of what you did and how with the time frame and who yeah. actually was in, in the cities, who's doing the monitoring there. I mean, what mm-hmm. groups, um, you know, be kind of specific about, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, um, well, for, for in the big picture, just you know, I mean, folks who launched it was the head of HP, you know, Fiorina, President Clinton, Jesse Jackson. They're the ones that helped launch this thing. And then once we got it going, I have my staff who works around the country, and they work with key directors in each of these different sites so that in San Diego we had um, the tribal digital villages, what it was called, and that involved 18 or 19 different tribes uh, and had the representatives of each of these tribes come together to help run it. So the whole point of this is a little different than the typical, here's this agency that did it, here's this group, et cetera. Each city I'm going to mention is a consortium of different groups that typically compete against each other but came together for this kind of effort. So in the case of, as I say, tribal digital village in San Diego, 18 or 19 tribes got together. Some of them are affiliated with casinos. Some of them don't have casinos. Uh, some have absolutely nothing. Uh, they all have problems with alcohol, uh, violence, drug abuse, I mean, you name it, all different kinds of issues associated with poverty, uh, and they came together for this initiative. second group in East Palo Alto is really consists of different groups, vested interest groups of uh, Latinos, uh, African Americans, uh, and Pacific Islanders. Once again, not exactly the most friendly all the time, same as the Native Americans, a lot of different you know, problems and difficulties and cultural baggage from years past of all sorts of issues, um, and I'll get to Baltimore in a second, but when I came into East Palo Alto, uh, which is right near where I am, uh, I said, you know, thanks for having me here, because part of it is they had to accept us, too. And I said, but I'm not here to make everybody friends and everything's wonderful. All I want to know is what your common interests are. So we asked, you know, are you interested in education? Yes, all the way across the board. Security, because it's pretty dangerous? Yes. Housing? No. So I said, fine, we're not going to work together on housing. We're only going to work on, uh, on the other two. And they got the idea. It's common vest interest. Baltimore, same sort of thing. Blacks and Wax was one of the community groups that was involved. We had the senior citizens that are involved. We had the Baltimore education system involved. 
so there's different groups within the uh, city, each of these cities, that came together that don't normally work together, but thought this might be something they could bond to and also work forward with. And they all related to the different kinds of initiatives. So in Baltimore, uh, they wanted to influence the schools, and same thing in East Palo Alto. So that's why they connected with the school system. Uh, the tribal digital village didn't have as great experience with education because of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the past, which often took the kids away uh, from the school, from from the families, and also didn't let them teach, you know, learn their, their language and that sort of thing. So they went for a different tact of really very focused interest in building the internet for improving education, preserving their culture, that sort of thing. So they all had different tacts based on their historical circumstances within the United States. Uh, good. I, well, this is a good model for the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, yeah. common vested interests, seriously. Yep. It is. Uh, yeah, it's a great model. I think, uh, I think that would work. It would work beautifully. I, I lived in Israel for about a year or so, and uh, there's no question. Uh, both Arab and, and uh, Israeli could get, get along if they focused on key common interests and accepted the fact that they don't have to be buddies or friends or family or whatever um, and move on forward on those. And they're very similar, ironically. Uh, education, security, it might be a higher level of all these things, but it's the same issues that you run across literally around the world uh, when, when you deal with this. And they are using it in Israel. I've done a couple talks and workshops over there, and there are some projects we have going. Uh, we have them around the world right now, in Ethiopia, Finland, Japan, you name it. But Israel comes to mind because that's one of the more difficult ones, and it is involving uh, folks that are going to be focused on being Palestinian, uh, Arabs from, in this case, Jordan, and Israelis. So not, I'm not saying it's the entire world that are interested in that in the Middle East, but there are some nice fledgling uh, uh, efforts at the, mo- at the moment. That's terrific. It's, yeah, it's a, obviously it's a great model. What about, okay, let's now get back to these three cities and get into uh, specific stories about individual peoples or individual groups. Let's say, how long has this been going on for each one, for each one of these cities? It's about since uh, the year 2000, I think, something like that. So... Uh, 2000 to 2001, and some of them are doing extremely well. And I don't want to paint a picture of everything as rosy and perfect or anything like that. There no, okay, of... talk about stuff that doesn't work, too, because that's just yeah. as important. Yeah. L- let me give you some examples of, I mean, briefly I'll mention, of course, one of our stellar things is the Tribal Digital Village, uh, because I was driving up to a different project one weekend uh, towards Oakland, and uh, I heard on the radio, they didn't even tell me, that the head of the FCC at the time was saying how this is uh, one of the shining stars that they have uh, because they built one of the largest unlicensed wireless systems in the country, unlicensed because they're a sovereign nation. And that was stellar. And they also you know, have a, a digital printing press, which is you know, still active in that sort of thing. So we've had some stellar, you know, out of the park, right out of the ballpark uh, kind of successes. At the same time, and, we've had, you know, and then we had moderate things, at the same time we have in Baltimore uh, a situation which is, from my perspective anyway, kind of unheard of. Uh, they actually uninvited the sponsor, HP. You know, HP spending $15 million, want to come do a site visit, and they said, uh, sorry, uh, we don't want you right now. Well, at the time, HP was very respectful and understand, understanding and said, you know, they just don't want to waste our time, so they're logically looking at they haven't accomplished enough and that sort of thing, blah, blah, blah. Well, all that was a baloney uh, because that's a very good idea and, rational, and sounds rational and sounds very sympathetic. And as evaluators, we also made the mistake of thinking that made sense at the time. But they invited us in, the evaluation team, because they trusted us as long as we made the deal that we wouldn't talk to HP, the sponsor, until 
they were comfortable with where they are and sort of thing. And we said, fine. Well, all this sounds great, but to be honest, it was a big mistake because it gave them an, an institutional arrogance that basically pushed away any kind of resource that HP had to offer in terms of technical expertise, projections, people who do projections and stuff like that, um, and, and, and know how to build organizations because they got away with it. It's like sort of a kid getting away with something like that, and, a, and, the, and then the kid keeps on learning, oh, that works. Okay, and well, then, what would be an example? And a, you know, a, a, oh, yeah, they, they wanted to bring in folks who helped them learn how to distribute the computers uh, very easily to the school system. And that was part of trying their big objective in, in Baltimore to try to get the kids using computers, the teachers, and uh, transform the curriculum in the process. Well, it did happen, but it happened at the very end of the game, uh, near the end of some of their, their funding for this initial effort, uh, when, in fact, if they had them earlier and also had people who helped them with a business plan, because it's a business in terms of how you have a, a chain of delivery of this equipment, how do you, you know, store it somewhere, how do you then deliver it, all this stuff could have been done very easily. People like that were invited, and HP offered them for free um, as part of the package. And they said, no, we're small business people. We can handle it ourselves, and on and on. Every time they did that, on the one hand, you could interpret it as, oh, they're becoming more self-sufficient. But the problem was there wasn't any substance behind it first to be able to do that. Let me give you another quick example of, sort of, of how it's all interpretation, because when I, I worked in townships in South Africa as well, and I was at a township and also at uh, squatter settlements. But at this township, uh, I'm sitting there, and I, I don't know a lot about horticulture, but I know a little bit from growing up and stuff like that in Connecticut. And, uh, and my mom was connected. She was a professor at the University of Connecticut. So I learned a little bit about all this stuff. So we're working on plots for you know gardens and that sort of thing so they can be more self-sufficient in, the, in this uh, settlement and stuff. And I, I get up from my chair, and I go, oh, you know, you might want to, and they said, David, David, we're all okay. We're fine. We're working on this. And the old me, in terms of an evaluator, would have been, what? I'm coming thousands of miles. I have some expertise. And you're saying, sit down, basically. The new kind of me, the sense of the, as an empowerment evaluator, says, great, they don't need me anymore. But you see, that one, that example, is backed up by the fact that they had already gotten background information from various students from agricultural centers in the area, some faculty, some folks who actually had just practical experience, and they were building their own plots and their own design. So that one merited sitting back and being uh, appreciative of the fact that they are becoming more self-determined. In Baltimore, it was an institutional kind of arrogance because they didn't have the wherewithal first, some basic information, before moving into uh, sort of I can do it myself. Well, in Baltimore, who was it? Who were the players? I mean, you described who the players were in, uh, I, I guess, in in uh, East Palo Alto or in San Diego, but you, but who were the players in Baltimore? Cause they... uh, yeah, that was the Baltimore uh, public school system. That uh, was one of the big ones. And then we had Blacks and Wax was a small, um, basically uh, famous African-American figures that are um, of African-American background. Um, then we had about... Um, the, the, it's sort of a kids' journalist kind of group that got pulled together. Um, and then we had these things called six hubs, which really meant senior centers, that sort of thing. Uh, these are the kind of key players that were involved that all got together. Uh, and they were called the Baltimore Digital Village with what's called signature projects. Um, and each one of them, and their signature project was really, in this case, handing out 300 computers to families and then uh, um, the same amount, number two, school system. Um, and to sort of slowly 
help influence the whole school system um, uh, to become more, in this case, net-based. Now, having said this, in the background, they also are training small groups who want to just become small businesses. Uh, and these are just people in the community who have either have a, a fledgling business going or don't have any business at all, but they're setting up a business model with these folks, and they're helping sort of train them, cultivate them, uh, and uh, give them resources, mostly equipment, uh, to move to move forward and build um, small businesses. David, how do you present some of the other, not these communities, obviously, because, okay, they were suffering as a result of this yeah. digital divide. What about other, and keep it in, in the United States, maybe other medium-sized cities or even big cities, how do you keep them from, because things change so quickly yeah. digitally, yeah. what, every 18 months, at least yeah. up to this point? Like, how do you prevent communities from, from actually suffering or from the digital, getting to that point where they haven't kept up. Do you know what I'm saying? Rather than yeah. after the fact, but before yeah. the fact. Yeah, yeah. There can be so much done you know, that's preventative, and, and we do work in that area as well. Um, and and I, the key, I think, is because of this approach we use with empowerment evaluation, where we say, let's see what we can do with what we have first before asking anybody for any money. And if you look at most cities that we, are, we operate in that we work with, there are senior centers that have um, computers for free. There are libraries that have computers they can use for free. Yeah, they're time limited. You have to go to the place. Are they optimal? No, but they exist. So you start creating uh, um, events, activities around this that help get them more um, acclimated in many cases to using computers. You have to keep in mind, a lot of folks, it, it is very difficult because a lot of folks have a computer phobia even in this day and age because they have been separated out, pushed away from it, but it's been promoted as, you know, uh, the panacea for, the, for this generation. Uh, and, in fact, it, it isn't the panacea, but it is instrumental. Um, and as a consequence, they feel they have failed by not being uh, connected. So they have to get past this barrier. That, they, that an empowerment evaluation works because it's very inclusive. Uh, it involves, by the way, barbecues, parties, whatever it takes to get people together. And within that context, we link them up with uh, net capacities, like, as I say, the senior citizen library. Um, and, and, and many schools offer them as well uh, to get kids connected. So first you do, as it were, a needs ass assessment of what's out there that we can already start tapping and using, and who has some expertise already in surfing the net, video conferencing, building web pages, et cetera, et cetera. And then you start connecting them with these groups at these different events that you start creating. It's interesting that you mentioned libraries. I have a friend who's the head of this, uh, well, actually a, a huge group where she goes around to the different libraries in New York State trying to get referendums for monies because people see libraries as dinosaurs. We don't yeah. need libraries anymore. But here you're giving a perfect example of, yeah, we do need these libraries. Yeah. And they do provide a resource for this absolutely. empowerment in, in the digital divide. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, people underestimate uh, how phenomenal librarians are, actually. Uh, one of my books, I've got about 14 books I've written, and one of them is dedicated to librarians because I also evaluated the Stanford library system, so I know intimately so how uh, critical they are, not just the ones that we see face-to-face, -face, but the technical ones in the background, um, the folks who take care of the old restoration stuff, you name it, are instrumental in maintaining our connection. And, and of course, many of them are very connected with the net and helping us connect with it for resource, for information, um, whatever it may be. I mean, it's made us all better consumers, which is a form of evaluation as well, by providing that information, that knowledge to us to assess uh, which car we want, 
uh, which uh, house, whatever it may be. Uh, and, it's, and of course, the ultimate one, of course, is through relationships with uh, you know, Match.com and other ones of that nature. Better for better or worse, they still represent another form yet of how the net reaches out to different parts of our lives. And once again, it can be through a resource of the library. It can be through a resource of a senior center. Uh, a lot of public places have them available, even though they're time limited. But uh, librarians, I think, are fantastic. There's no question about it. Uh, we take a lot for granted uh, without them. Uh, yeah, we just lost power, so I don't know what I'm on my cell. Oh, okay, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but there's always a cell. Hey, this is. Are we talking about the digital divide? Yeah, <laughs> talk about. <laughs> this was, funny? This, was, this is what can happen. It all depends on the electricity. This is what can happen, David, and this is very well planned. See, this is an example. <laughs> <laughs> we we put this in so the audience can see. That as great as all this is, the irony is. Uh, it can all fall apart once we have an electrical storm. I mean, a storm, and then electricity goes out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm not sure what and the reason, but anyway. So we still have a few minutes. But so just what, what you were just finish up what you were saying because I missed the last couple of uh, thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just highlighting. I think the role of, in this case, librarians. Uh, I've, you know, I've dedicated my my book to, and one of my books of that I've done. I've done about fourteen, and one of them was focused on them because I worked with them very closely and uh, help get a feel for how they get information to us. And they're very much linked up now with the net for resources and getting us connected as well, including local how do you, communities. You, you know what I wanted to ask you, because we do only have a couple minutes left, but yeah. what about the digital divide amongst age groups? I know I, you know, yeah. I have three boys who are like late 20s or early 30s, and that's one of the things you know one of my kids said to me, you know, there's really not a difference in terms of social mores and the way you dress and who, you know, and... Uh, you know, sex and all that. That's very similar. I'm a baby boomer. But the digital di- digital divide is huge. And then as you have people who are living longer in their 70s, 80s, yeah. and 90s, yeah. they have a very different, you know, skill set as compared to people, say, in their 20s and 30s and even 40s. Oh, yeah. There's, let me I'll tell you two, two quick stories. I was on the plane with uh, this young man who was really nice, and he, he got his, his parents' uh, computer and that sort of thing. And then about a month later, he got this massive bill. And he said, what is going on here? You know, and, well, the way we ignore pop-ups that say you have to buy this and do this, they thought it was just the computer telling them what to do, like directions, and they bought a ton of things. So for some seniors, it's very important that uh, you treat them differently as far as an education to the system and that sort of thing. On the other hand, seniors are often more facile than anyone else because they have more time to focus in on how to use it. So you have an interesting divide even within seniors uh, as far as uh, as far as use. But I think, you know, sort of focus on the, the big picture of all the stuff we're talking about, from my perspective, there's, I think, a movement afoot to transform the human condition. And I think the Internet is just one tool of many, but it's a powerful one that we want to don't want to ignore, that we want to be able to use uh, to all of our advantages. And that's why uh, this big project, uh, the $50 million investment, basically, is because it's really an investment in the future. Obviously, HP has a vested interest in making sure that they benefit because more people use it, uh, they buy their equipment, et cetera. But the reality is that they don't have to do that. It's really an investment in making sure we don't leave so many folks behind that might be productive individuals, uh, critical individuals. Um, and and it's, it could be the weakest link. Do you see this, David, as, as an example for other big companies, say like HP, Hewlett-Packard, to also get on the bandwagon for this kind of stuff, for, for these, this kind of empowerment project? 
Absolutely. I just got a piece that came out a couple of days ago in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and it talks about these uncertain times that we have and how uh, basically this is a tool, a model that they can use uh, to start investing in people in a very powerful way, in a way that isn't just a hand out, but it's hand up. You're basically helping people by investing in them so they can learn how to monitor and take care of their own lives because none of us are going to be here forever. We're going to be here to help, to assess, to help feedback loops so they can learn what's going on. And the reality is we walk away into another project, different part of our life, whatever happens, you need folks to be able to build their own capacity so they can move on into the future without us, basically. Well, it's a great project and, and obviously uh, great principles. Um, but at davidfetterman.com, um, that's the website that listeners can go to if they want more information, not only about this book. You've written how many other books? But Fourteen books and over 100 articles and stuff like that. And many of them I have articles and videos for free on the net. So if they want to take a look and see if this is interesting for your community, we have a ton of free guides on how to do all this stuff. Uh, and articles and information and uh, radio uh, interviews as well if they want to hear a little bit more about what we talk about on some of these. Terrific. It's been great having you on the show today. Well, and, thanks, uh, for, thanks for having yeah. me. I appreciate it. Great. Yeah, great talking to you. Lots of obviously interesting information. Is, and again, davidfetterman.com, that's the website. And the title of his latest book, David Fetterman, is Employment Evaluation in the Digital Villages. Have a good day. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you have been listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week. We'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.